Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you be a faithful citizen. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch us right here each week at the very same time, but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast, or you can find the Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting our public life. We also answer your questions in our mailbag segment, and you can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org, or connect with us on social media. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you could start laying the bricks that build the common good. In today's episode, we're discussing the concept of political hobbyism. I think if we had to really examine ourselves and say, am I actually engaging in politics as a faithful citizen, contributing to the common good, or am I simply watching it on TV? We're going to look at why it's fueling division in our society and how we can begin to truly engage in politics instead of just talking about it or fighting about it. We're joined on the line by Dr. Itan Hirsch. He's an associate professor in the political science department at Tufts University in Massachusetts, where he focuses on American politics, civic participation, voting rights, elections, and political behavior. Dr. Hirsch recently authored the book, Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. And that's published by Scribner. Dr. Hirsch, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you for having me. The subtitle of your book, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, that indicates it will guide the reader beyond political hobbyism. But what do you mean by that term, political hobbyism? How do you turn, how could politics possibly be a hobby? Yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, you, if we think about how ordinary people participate in politics, you might make a definition of politics like this, that doing politics is working with others with goals and strategies to influence the government. But if you look at the data about how people participate in politics, it doesn't look like that's what they're doing. It looks like more that what they're doing is serving their own emotional and intellectual interests in politics. So they'll follow a lot of news, they'll talk about it, they'll share it online, they'll maybe take a couple token actions like a $5 donation or something like that. But it's mostly something that you do for yourself, like a hobby, as opposed to something you do as a form of service to the community or to others. When you say a hobby, does that mean like entertainment too? I mean, could it, it, we, sometimes we joke that some of these cable news uh, outlets are the more entertainment channels than they are substantive information. Yeah, you know, I kind of in the book dis- distinguish between deep hobbies and shallow hobbies. So, you know, deep hobbies are like, you know, they're, you know, you work in groups, you build something, you do some craft, you have some long-term project, you're focused on the delayed gratification that comes with doing something over a long term and building skills. But then we have these shallow hobbies, you know, being a a sports fan. It's not just watching, you know, maybe you're also like arguing about it, or maybe you're in a, in a fantasy league. Um, And my family, I think we're like, we're, we're shallow foodie hobbies. Like we'll, you know, watch a lot of food shows and maybe read some restaurant reviews. So that I would call a shallow hobby. And I think politics for most people is in that shallow hobby category. How do you see political hobbyism manifest in the lives of everyday Americans? So this is a phenomenon that's really common among people who are college-educated. They know politics is important. And if you look on surveys, people will say they spend an hour, two hours a day. Many people, like a third of the country, says they spend close to two hours a day engaged in politics. 
And then if I ask them, which I've done, how do you spend that time? Like, how do you allocate your political time? They'll say it's mostly news consumption or sharing online, you know, debating online, reacting online, or it's discussions on the dinner table, or it's sort of just agonizing by yourself. And then if you ask them about the concrete ways that you actually might do politics, you know, volunteer for a political organization, work for a campaign, you're part of a civic organization in your community, that amounts to almost none of the time that people are allocating to politics. In fact, most people who are spending time every day on news, they belong to zero organizations, have done zero activities in the community in the last year, have attended zero meetings. So we actually have this this phenomenon which has grown over time where a greater share of the population takes a lot of interest and I think is emotionally engaged in politics. But we have a decline over time of people who are actually engaged in real power-seeking politics, which doesn't sound, it just sounds scary. Some people are scared of power-seeking. That just means you're just trying to convince other people, maybe they're politicians, maybe they're citizens, to take some action, like vote a certain way or advocate for some policy that they wouldn't take without you helping them along. So I think that we've had this reduction of the power-seeking real politics and this increase in hobbyist self-gratification politics. I think people would be pretty surprised to learn that there's a seg- huge segment of the population that spends an hour or two engaged in reading political news or following that kind of stuff. How does it that type of fix got so popular? What is it that draws people in and gets them sucked into that dynamic? But then, like you said, when they're when it comes to actually engaging in ways that can make real change, they're not necessarily doing that as well. I mean, so there's a bunch of different causes here that I talk about in the book. I mean, one is the technological one, which is, I think, pretty, um, you know, not obvious, but maybe it's once you start thinking about it, it makes sense, which is that we actually do all forms of our leisure now more likely. We're more likely to do them in like five-minute stints throughout the day than in an hour or two-hour chunk at night. So a lot of people who have jobs where they're sitting at a computer, they can toggle back and forth throughout the whole day between their work and Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, for those who are interested in politics, they spend a lot of time. If you add up those five-minute chunks, it amounts to quite a lot of time engaged in politics. But, again, it's not never like an hour of solid time that you could do, you know, you could attend a meeting. So we have this in all hobbies, right? So we, we have people who can easily engage in a sports fantasy league, but they're less likely to, you know, participate in a softball league. But there's there's other things happening, too, that I think increases this, uh, over time and the reason people get sucked into it. You know, another one, which is related to technology, is it? it feels so easy. It's easy to feel emotionally connected to a political moment online. Um, and you kind of have satisfied your desire to feel that connection. And so I think going to participate feels harder relative to how easy it feels to, to get that, that kind of cathartic connection. There's a whole bunch of other stories. I mean, one has to do with the nationalization of news, right? We have really an appetite for national drama, horse race stuff, outrage. Um, and what that does is it makes us feel like it's very important that we are connected to the big important things in Washington. Like the way to do politics is to feel connected to those important things. And once we keep our sights on those important things in Washington, that makes us feel like we're not important. Like, we don't have a role to play in an impeachment trial or a congressional hearing or anything happening in Washington. So we need to pay attention to it, but we're not important. And I think the shift that people need to make, really, is 
going from a situation where they are an unimportant part of something big to they're an important part of something. And so, you know, I think when you're engaged in your community, and that's true whether it's a religious community, a civic community, political community, you know, people are counting on you, and you are important. You are going to change people's lives. You're going to move people to believe something that they don't believe right now. And so in that scenario, which I think is what real politics is about, an individual citizen is important. And that's different than what we have right now, which is being online and feeling connected to something important and far away. We're speaking with Dr. Aiten Hirsch. He is an associate professor in the political science department at Tufts University and the author of a book, Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. Dr. Hirsch, I want to spend a little bit more time later in our discussion to talk about recovering our political agency, which I think you're alluding to, and especially at the local level and at the community level. But how do we get to the point, do you think, where political engagement is equated with getting outraged and venting one's spleen in some online forum? Beyond the technology story, there's a bunch of other stories. One of the causes here is that as the college-educated population has increased over time, to you know, something like 5% of the population in the maybe 1940s to over 30% of the population today. There's um, evidence presented by a Harvard professor, Sita Scotchpole, that basically people who are college-educated, they feel less like they're stewards of their community. They feel less like they're needed and important. And what's also happened is that that population has become... Uh, like things have been very good for them in the last bunch of years. You know, it's been 50 years since we've had military conscription. People with college degrees have good jobs. And so this is a population that has really shifted away from kind of community-oriented responsibility to hobbyism. And I think one of the real reasons for that is that the status quo for them is quite good. When you look at the data, you see something sort of amazing, which is that the population that is most engaged online in politics the ones who are most learning, learning the most facts, these tend to be college-educated white men. But if you look at the people who are engaging actively in community organizations, you know, for example, for over a decade now, African-Americans have reported much higher levels of organized political activity than white Americans. You see since 2016 this real surge in women participating in politics, particularly on the left, where you have like these groups, like indivisible groups that are maybe two-thirds women. A lot of the theories that we have about all of these demographic trends have to do with essentially like how comfortable are you with the status quo? How much do you feel like you need to make a change? And I think for folks who don't feel that urgency, it's easy to do politics as kind of a frivolous hobby because they're not really needing anything from the government. Whereas groups that feel threatened for one reason or another, or feel like they they need to make a lot more gains, they're the ones who are you know, maybe spending overall less time learning political facts and and listening to podcasts and stuff like that, but more time in organized political life. So they're making a rational choice to say, well, it's not worth my investment of time. I can do this, but still sort of feed my existential fix to be involved. But at the end of the day, it's not really worth making taking that time to make that investment to work for real change. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people are in a social network where they're expected to kind of know the ins and outs of national dramatic news stories, but they're not expected to show up to a community meeting. And in fact, they might even demean that, like it's beneath them to actually get in the trenches of political activity, where because they think all the important stuff's happening in D.C., where they can follow the news from their couch.
since you spoke about demographics, this idea of the great sort where the wealthy and educated are moving into major metropolitan centers, they're very mobile, both socially, economically, but also geographically. They have less tie to place, for example. How does that dynamic, do you think, fit into this whole development of political hobbyism where we're not engaged as much in the, the politics of our local communities and our states? Well, one, one, thing, one manifestation of this is that you hear all the time from people, they live in a bubble. They're one of the reasons they convince themselves they don't have to do anything real in politics is because they think everyone around them agrees with them. That's a, a funny thing, because actually, if you were engaged in real politics, you know, a lot of liberals will say their big issue is climate change. Okay, so they think that they're in a bubble where everyone agrees with them where they live on climate change. And what they mean by that is like they'll all support the same you know, presidential candidate, or they all think that the United States should be in the Paris Climate Agreement. But actually, if they were to talk to their neighbors about making hard choices in their own communities that will affect their bottom lines, like maybe our state should raise the gas tax, maybe our state should do this or that environmental policy where we're going to have to pay some cost, all of a sudden, the bubbles go away. You know, like people will actually disagree with them about all sorts of things. Um, they won't have such common ground. And that's true in conservative areas, too. You know, in conservative areas, people may vote the same way for the presidential election. But when it comes down to it, not that many people will actually probably want to gut the school system, for example. And so I, I think that focusing on national politics makes people think that they're it gives people a good excuse to not engage in local issues, because it turns out, obviously, in local issues, it's harder to make common ground with people who are your neighbors in some ways, because you actually have to disagree with them about stuff and, and work with them and try to move them in your direction. And if you just convince yourself that you're in a bubble, you won't have to do that. We're speaking with Dr. Ethan Hirsch. He's an associate professor at Tufts University and the author of Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. Dr. Hirsch, you draw an analogy. You compare political hobbyists to those who are say they are spiritual but not religious, something we often hear in conversations in our culture. Draw out that analogy a little bit more for us. Sure. So, you know, the spiritual but not religious ethos is basically an ethos where Folks are trying to extract some benefit for themselves from religious uh, ideas, like a feel of connection to spirituality, um, for example. But they're they're not trying to uh, they're trying not to obligate to the other people in a community. Like they don't want to join a church and put themselves in a situation where they are expected to show up to contribute to help build a community. There's a lot of reasons I make this analogy. One is actually I think a lot of my readers initially would like the idea of spiritual but not religious engagement. It's very popular uh, and growing among this segment of the public who's like, say, college-educated liberals who are spending the most time in political hobbyism, too. But the analogy is, is that these are both all about, both political hobbyism and spiritual but not religious engagement are all about trying to extract something from something important for you, for your own gratification, rather than obligating yourself to others. So, you know, you have a spirituality iPhone app that gives you five minutes of bliss. So you, but you know, you're not you're not in the, you're not putting yourself in a situation where you can do good deeds for others, where you can, you know, really learn together as a community about how to move forward. Same thing with political hobbyism. You know, you'll extract some emotional connection to politics that makes you feel gratified in the moment, but really you are not contributing 
meaningfully to building a better future. We like to joke that spirituality is about me and religion is about we. So uh, fascinating. That's exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) Fascinating analogy. Okay. So not just diagnosing the problem, but getting to some solutions. How do we rise beyond political hobbyism and make real change? You've already alluded to this a little bit by recalibrating our scope from the national, maybe to the more local, but say more about that. Yeah. You know, when, uh, if someone goes, if someone who's a news junkie, like, you know, exits Facebook for a week or two, it's very unlikely that they're going to get calls from their friends being like, hey, we really missed your hot takes, you know, please come back. <laughs> and the reason that's true is because, you know, our relationships, they are not serious enough that anyone would be concerned. But I know that in like a religious community, if I stop showing up for a week or two, and in a real political community, the same thing, if I stop showing up, people would be like, hey, where have you been? We need you. And I think the first thing to do is to shift in paradigm of going from a, a situation where you feel, you know, where you're being, to, to, to go to a situation where you're being relied upon, where people do need you. And that means that you are playing some important role. The second paradigm shift to make, I think, is related to what your job is as a citizen. And look, a lot of people don't want to do much in politics beyond vote. And in some ways, this book is not really for them. I mean, if they vote, great, even though a lot of them don't. And actually, a lot of people find it even hard to figure out who to vote for at a state and local level. But for the person who wants to do more and who's already spending an hour or two a day on politics, what concretely should they be thinking is their job? And I would say their job is to get people to come along with them. Every one of us is entitled to one vote as a citizen. How many more can we get? And in the book, I go talk about the stories of seven organizers, and they all think about politics in terms of, I'm entitled to one vote, how many more can I get? And there are these remarkable stories. I mean, this, this man who is 98 years old who is said to control a thousand votes in his old age home. And what that really just means is that he's built a lot of trust and rapport with his neighbors over the years. He's done them a lot of favors. They know that he has their back. And he passes around a slate of candidates that they should support, and he gets out the vote. And this community of basically refugees living in this old age home, they have a two or three times the turnout rate of all the precincts around them, and everyone basically votes the same way. You know, people call this guy the Ukrainian boss. And the, the thing is that at first a lot of people say, oh, that sounds weird or bad. Like, who, what's a boss, and what does it mean to control votes? And the, the thing is, it, what it really means in this case is, this guy has built trust so that people uh, move along with him to uh, help serve their community and uh, their, their values. And so I think that all of the stories in the book have this flavor of people thinking about politics and their own engagement beyond voting as building additional votes, getting another person to come along with you, getting another person. It's almost like, you know, you're a missionary for politics. Like, how many lives can you change? Indeed, indeed. And I think in a time where people are anxious, they feel disenfranchised uh, because they're so focused on the national level, recalibrating our vision and focusing more on what we're doing in our communities and the practical things we can do could be really empowering. So I appreciate uh, your book and this conversation that we've been having, Dr. Hirsch. One thing is for our listeners, this idea of politics is for power. We, Pope Francis says that politics is one of the highest forms of charity because it serves the common good. We talk about politics in the church as a, a mode of service. It's us contributing to that conversation about how we order our lives together. But for those who might be a little bit put off by this idea of power politics, what are you really saying there? Because I, I don't think it's—I I think you're saying more than that, but just unpack that dynamic a little bit more for us. 
Yeah, first I'll say that in the book, really, I do put a great emphasis on the, the idea that politics is a service. And it's a service in two ways. First is, when you get political power so you can control part of the government, you hopefully are doing that as a form of community service. That is, if you really want to serve your neighbors, if you want to serve the next generation of people in your community, um, then you can do it through non-political means. But politics is one of the tools we have to serve our communities. Politics is also a form of service in a different way, which is that I think as organizer after organizer in this book show, the way to get political power, that is the way to have the candidates that you like in leadership positions, you actually need to really serve your community and build that trust so people will come along with you uh, to vote or to advocate when you ask them to. But in the book, I also talk about how groups that I really don't like have this same method. I talk about the Ku Klux Klan in the opening pages of the book. The Ku Klux Klan in 2018 in North Carolina went around to folks in North Carolina and said, um, hey, do you have an opioid addiction? You know, it's not your fault. We here at the KKK are here to help you. And I bring up this example, assuming that, you know, most hopefully all my readers are not into the KKK, because I want them to see that the methods, if you have good values or bad values, are pretty much the same. That is, what is the KKK doing there? They're saying, they're actually not talking about their big white nationalist ideas. They're saying, um, hey, we're here to help you, and they're going to look people in the eye and say, we're here to help. But if no one else is saying that, then they're going to get power. And what I want readers, I want readers to kind of sit with how uncomfortable that is and say, my gosh, if they're doing it, um, you know, maybe I should do it too. And maybe I should see that if I really want to serve my community and promote a vision that, that I'm happy with, then I'm going to need to seek power too. And I do that by serving my community and getting people to go along with me to propose an agenda that I'm comfortable with, with and certainly more comfortable with than you know, what the KKK is offering out there in North Carolina. Indeed, politics is often just about showing up, right? And I think your book is a, helping to chart a path forward for people who want to recover their moral agency and are troubled by some of the developments in their communities but are looking for practical ways to do so. That's try to, what we try to do on the show, and I think your book uh, is an outstanding resource for people looking to recalibrate their political vision. Dr. Aitan Hirsch, thanks for being on the show. Your book is Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action, and Make Real Change. Thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today, Dr. Hirsch. Thank you so much for having me on. An outstanding conversation, and we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what have you got in the mailbag today? Yeah, so back on March 10th, the Twin Cities, both St. Paul and Minneapolis City Council, declared the day Abortion Provider Appreciation Day. Because of this, we received many calls and questions from Catholics, not just in those cities, but really across Minnesota, really upset about this, wanting to know what happened, what can be done to stop such actions as this, especially going forward. 
I think this is a great question in light of our previous conversation with Dr. Hirsch about political hobbyism. I think it's fantastic that people were outraged and disappointed by the actions of both the city of Minneapolis and the city of St. Paul. It made national news sort of a national disgrace, in fact, especially given all the problems that we have in both Minneapolis and St. Paul on a number of fronts. I just like my streets plowed, for goodness sake, as a St. Paul resident. But what was interesting about it was the way in which something that in terms of its actual policy consequence has no real value. I mean, it's not terribly different than them naming a Charles Schultz Peanuts Day in St. Paul. It was on the consent agenda and basically move forward with a voice vote. So it's terrible and disappointing, especially given the good that all the pregnancy resource centers are doing in places like Minneapolis and St. Paul, helping women instead of discarding children through abor- and women through abortion. There's pregnancy resource centers, for example, going out, helping people, serving women in need, and accompanying them in a difficult crisis pregnancy. So it's really disappointing. But at the same time, though, let's think about the overall impact and the, the outrage and the energy that this generated, which, again, as I mentioned, is fine. But what are those same folks doing on actual public policies of consequence? The time people took to address that issue and speak to that issue, which is, again, fine, but then on other issues of actual policy consequence, uh, we're finding people in many instances don't often show up for those things. So relative to the energy that's generated, at least in our network, and our community, on one thing, which, again, is terrible but has no policy consequence, versus significant public policy questions, assisted suicide, legalization of commercial surrogacy, et cetera, et cetera where we really need people taking action because these can change the policy landscape and have a huge impact on our communities. The amount of energy that was generated in response to one thing as opposed to what's generated on other issues I think is a little odd and disproportionate, one might say. And so it seems that the challenge is is how do we speak to things but at the same time calibrate our activity in ways that can make concrete change? It's easy to get outraged, express outrage, and a lot of people did that. A lot of people wrote letters. And again, that's good and and noteworthy. But at the same time, is it proportionate to what we should be doing to make an actual change? And one of the challenges is people feel disenfranchised. They don't know how to act. So there's a gap there. But When we recalibrate our vision and say, what can we do in ways that we can make an impact? How do I recover my political agency? And we have to ask ourselves, how did we get to the point where Minneapolis and St. Paul are voting unanimously in their city councils to pass these things? And it's because we're probably not in relationship. In many ways, Catholics have ceded local politics to other people. And just as Dr. Hirsch was talking about, it's about showing up. It's about getting engaged. It's about seeing change and wanting change and then actually doing things to make it happen. And I think if Catholics are honest with themselves, at least in the urban and metro areas, we often haven't been engaged at the local level. Are we in conversation with our elected officials about what good pregnancy resources are doing in their communities, for example. Are we in relationship with them? Are we talking to them? Are we so fixated on abortion politics at the state or national level that we're missing the the importance of being engaged in the local level at home? So I think it's it's an important lesson for us in terms of how do we calibrate our politics and our engagement effectively and maybe rethink what we're doing on the local level. Because again, as Dr. Hirsch mentioned, the city council is going to live in a bubble if the only voices it hears from are people who think like them, right? So of course, we're going to celebrate National Abortion Provider Appreciation Day because everyone I talk to appreciates it. But if we're actually in conversation with them, if they've got another, if there are another points of view that they're hearing, then maybe that conversation shifts a little bit. Thank you so much for really 
unpacking that, giving us some, you know, practical advice there. Uh, as we move now into our bricklayer segment, we also have some other practical tips that you can take with you in order to start building bridges between faith and politics. What do you have this week for us, Jason? Well, the 50th anniversary of Earth Day is April 22nd. The year is also the fifth anniversary of the release of Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. You can visit us at mncatholic.org to order your copies of our Minnesota Our Common Home Study Guide, which is our local adaptation of Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. How do we care for creation? Everything from our bodies to the environment. So the Minnesota Our Common Home is a great resource to consider the gifts of creation, how we steward them effectively, particularly the gift of life. You can find resources to mark the fifth anniversary of Laudato Si and Earth Day also by visiting catholicclimatecovenant.org and clicking on their programs tab for Earth Day resources. Again, that's catholicclimatecovenant.org to go along with the resources that we provide at mncatholic.org. That's all the time we have for today. Remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. Doing so helps you uh, bring the Catholic faith and its mission in the public square to others. To find out more information about sponsorship opportunities, visit us at show at mncatholic.org. You can also send your questions to that same email for our mailbag segment, show at mncatholic.org, or connect with us on social media. Catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder at mncatholic.org podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.